Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. I'm glad that we did the video about the uh, life groups um, because, uh, of course, today is the life group uh, launch, and you can get yourself into a life group, get signed up for one. And over the last few weeks, I've been trying to, before the sermon, talk to you a little bit about life groups. I told you a few Sundays ago that life groups give you a chance to do a double take on scripture. You know how it is, you maybe hear a message or you wrestle with a Bible passage for 40 minutes and then you walk out and it's, it is very easy to kind of go in one ear and out the other and not really ask the question, what does this mean for me and what am I going to do about or with this passage of scripture? But uh, there's so much more retention that occurs when we revisit the text and teaching in our life groups, but also application that comes into uh, our lives. I also talked to you last week about how non-linear discipleship happens inside the context of a life group. There are things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life that you don't even know about yet. And so you can't even identify, I wanna grow in this, therefore I need to learn about this, or I need to have someone show me this. But sometimes in the context of a life group, as life unfolds, or as you watch and observe great people in your group, uh, the Spirit will point his finger at something in your life that he is trying to touch. And it happens in a less than linear way, but it happens. And uh, today, what I want to highlight is the fact that Christian community is so vital. Uh, in the early church, uh, when the Holy Spirit broke out upon the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, it says that they continued then steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, in the fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, they made a conscious decision. We're going to get together, not just to be together, not only to have friendship together, but we're going to have Christian friendship. And uh, I don't know what it is about us as modern believers, but sometimes it seems that we have difficulty, uh, even with those that we know love Jesus, really talking about the Lord, really sharing our lives as Christians with uh, each other. And uh, so sometimes even as a Christian, you might say, well, I don't, I don't need a life group. I've got plenty of Christian friends. But then sometimes when we do inventory on how much are you really talking about scripture together? How much are you really holding each other accountable? How much are you really opening up, uh, talking about the things that God is doing in your life? Or is it just all sports and current events and things like that? And sometimes the structure of a life group gives you just the nudge that you need to say, no, I want Christian friends to turn into Christian fellowship. And uh, so I'd encourage you towards that brand of community uh, in the groups this coming quarter. So get yourself signed up over these next couple of weeks. All right, let's read our psalm together, Psalm 19. If you guys would follow along uh, in your Bibles or on the screen, there's a little postscript or prescript to the choir master, a psalm of David. Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from, in, from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful uh, psalm that this man, David, clearly with his personality and his background and his history all embedded in its lyrics, but also, Lord, behind that, your spirit moving him, shaping him, compelling him to put down what you wanted us to hear. And so, Lord, we pray that you take this psalm, this psalm that extols you as our creator, this psalm that extols you as our lawgiver, this psalm that extols you or hints at you as our savior. We pray, Lord, that you would use th these concepts here to help us become a worshiping people. And so, Lord, we ask and pray that you'd speak to us today from your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, today, from this psalm, I want to talk to you about the importance of reading well, of reading well. Now, some of you are already a little bit scared when I say that because you're saying to yourself, oh, I'm not a reader, I don't like reading, and that's, that's really not what I'm suggesting. I would love for you to be a book reader. I think there's some great books that you should be reading, uh, but what I want to talk to you about today is the importance of reading nature really well the importance of reading scripture really well, and the importance of reading yourself really well, because that's what happens in this psalm. All three of those things occur. David comes to nature, he reads it, he interprets it, he thinks about it, and he comes to a wise conclusion about who God is based on what he sees. Then he turns to scripture, the, the law of the Lord, and he comes to a wise conclusion about who God is based on what he reads in the word. And as a result of both of those things, David then reads himself. He comes to a good and wise conclusion about who he is in light of this majestic, glorious creator God who gave the perfect, wonderful law of the Lord. And so David then cries out to God for mercy because he understands who he himself is, a man who has fallen short of the glory of God. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, now this passage, this psalm, uh, it's an exciting psalm. Uh, because it highlights both general and special revelation. 
you know, talks about general revelation, meaning creation, how God speaks to all of humanity through nature. In fact, in the lobby uh, before the first service, I had an older gentleman, he walked in, he said, Psalm 19 today, and I said, yeah, and he said, oh, I remember that Psalm uh, being a Psalm that I was on a trip backpacking with my boys, and I opened up my Bible to where I left off in the Psalms, and it was Psalm 19, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. And, and, uh, and then uh, none of you said that on the way into the 11 o'clock service. So <laughs> apparently you guys didn't do your homework like uh, they did at the first one. But then special revelation, what is that? Special revelation is how God speaks specifically through Scripture. And David rejoices over that. God, you've not only spoken through the natural order that everyone can see, but you've also spoken specifically in your word. Special revelation is what God tells us about himself in the Bible. Uh, general revelation reaches everyone everywhere, but special revelation must be read or it must be heard preached. So what we have here in this psalm is a man who has read nature and scripture and has come to the right conclusions about who God is. From nature, he determined that God is glorious. And from scripture, he determined that God is wonderful. And both have helped him understand his need for grace. And so because he read well, he wrote or penned this powerful poem of praise. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually talked about Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis, a pretty good writer in his own right. And he said that this is one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It's just, a, it's a beautiful psalm that David wrote. Okay, now, the reality, though, is that not everyone reads nature and scripture and therefore themselves like David did. So the question is, how did he read it? What was he getting out of it? Because that's where we want to go. We want to be uh, like him. So what, what led him to look into all three of these things and rejoice over God? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to think about these three sections of the psalm and think about how God reveals himself in nature, in the word, in scripture, in the law, and then also to us about ourselves. So let's look at the first one. Number one, nature showed David something about God. And I think if I were to put a word on what it is that David learned about God, he learned that God is glorious. He learned that God is glorious as he looked at nature. Uh, he said there in verse one, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, you guys know this. David was a man who was probably more in tune with the natural realm than most, if not all, of us. He spent many years uh, out under the stars, uh, first as a shepherd for his father and then as a fugitive a couple of times on the run for his life in Israel's wilderness. Uh, he didn't know about screen time. Uh, he didn't know about artificial light. Uh, David was a man in tune with the earth's rhythms, the changing of the seasons, and the behavior of the sun and stars, and it led him to be a worshiper of God. I remember a, a few years ago, uh, Pastor Josh, our youth pastor, uh, he invited me and just a couple of other guys to go on a backpacking trip into Yosemite, and uh, he's been there so many times. It's a place that he knows like the back of his hand, and uh, so I said yes, and uh, we headed out and we spent a, a half a day or so doing a moderate hike, just kind of getting to a spot a few miles away from 
uh, half dome so that we could camp. And then uh, he organized it so that at three o'clock or so in the morning, we would wake up while it was still dark and we'd uh, get our gear together, leave our base camp, and then we would hike uh, to the very top of uh, Half Dome. And it was the time of year where uh, they don't have the cables up, but they're just kind of lying on uh, the rocks. So we had to bring harnesses and kind of strap in and all of that. And I, I forgot to mention to him that I'm super afraid of heights. And <laughs> so I was having a little bit of a panic attack as we're kind of going up, but we got almost to the top. We're about halfway up this rock and the sun begins to rise. I mean, it was just beautiful. We get, we get to the top, and uh, I didn't know that he was doing this, but he brought a stove with him to the top of Half Dome. He cooked up potatoes and bacon and eggs for us. All these other random hikers were coming up like, who are you guys? What are you doing? And we're like, yeah, we're just, this is our rock right now, you know? But as we were there, you know, just looking out, it was just another one of those fresh moments, like I'm sure you have had a hundred times in your life where you see something so beautiful in God's created order, and it just, it's like it, it's pulling you towards him. That's what David is saying. When I, when I just consider all of this, I consider God's handiwork, I'm blown away. Now, David would have never talked about, he would have never said the words, the teleological case for God, but he believed it. That's a line of reasoning that points out the natural world's finely tuned design. Uh, just like you would never go out to the church parking lot after service and look at a Honda and think that it somehow came to be without a designer and without a builder, David would have never looked at a sheep or listened to the beautiful music of his harp or tasted honeycomb without thinking that a designing God was behind it all. Uh, David also would have never talked about, would have never used the words, the cosmological case for God, but he believed it. Uh, that's a line of reasoning that concludes that everything that we see, the chairs you're sitting on, the neighbor that's seated next to you today, everything we see has a beginning. So something without a beginning must have been the original beginning, must have started it all. Finite things exist. Someone must cause finite things to exist. There cannot be an infinite regress of causes, so there must be an uncaused cause of everything that exists, an infinite that made the finite. And when David drank in the beauty of the stars and the dark of the night, when he noted the daily course of the sun, he knew there is someone bigger than me who instituted all of this. And David would have never talked about the moral case for God, but he believed it. The moral case for God is a line of reasoning that points out that in general, humanity shares a moral nature and structure. And that gives us a clue that a law giver exists. Different cultures behave in different ways over human history, but every culture that has ever written down its code of ethics or code of conducts uh, generally agrees uh, you're not going to find lots of cultures, in other words, who write down, murder is a great idea. In general, God's thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, has been embedded upon the heart of humanity. Uh, Paul the Apostle alluded to this when he wrote in Romans chapter 2 that when people without the law do what Scripture requires, they are showing 
that the work of the law, the word of the law is written on their hearts. Their own conscience, he said, is bearing witness to a Bible that they perhaps have never read. But even though David wouldn't have articulated it quite like Paul did, he knew that though humankind is marred by sin and therefore flawed, God has made us in his image. And David rejoiced that God's glory and God's handiwork as found in nature were read everywhere by everyone. There's no one that escapes this message. Notice in verse two, he pointed out that God's revelation in nature is continuous. It's always on. Day to day, he said, it pours out its speech. And night to night, it reveals its knowledge. It's like it's on continuous repeat, looping over and over to anyone who's alive. He pointed out in verse four, how God's revelation in nature is nonverbal. It has, he says, no speech, it has no words, and it has no voice. And you might think at first that that's bad, but it's actually good because what it means is that God's revelation in nature has no human language barrier to break down. Now, the Bible was written primarily in Hebrew and in Greek. That's a language barrier for most of us. Work had to be done in order for us to comprehend it, but not so with nature. It has no speech, it has no words, but it is communicating. And David pointed out how God's revelation in nature is universal. He said that it goes to the end of the world, all through the earth, to the very end of the earth. Everywhere and everyone reads God's nature book, is what David is saying. And in nature, God's handiwork, he said, is proclaimed. God is revealed to a degree through nature. Now, we needed the Bible to get a better understanding of God. But much can be learned of who God is by observing nature. Uh, for instance, he's revealed, as I said already, as eternal because something preexistent must have started all that is. So that tells us there is an eternal being. That helps us understand there's a, an eternal state as well. He's revealed as infinite because only an ultimate power could create something out of absolutely nothing. He's revealed as wise because all that he has made shows us as, that he's an intelligent and discerning being in what he made. He's revealed as good because the world he commissioned for us is a good world. He's revealed as unparalleled. No one's like him because in a sense, there are only two categories now, created and creator, and only God is in the creator column. And he's revealed as faithful because he's made a dependable world with days and seasons and years. David celebrated this when he talked about the daily faithfulness of the son. And he's revealed as loving because even though he made the vastness of all that is, he placed so much attention on little old planet Earth. And the more we discover, the more we understand how incredible this place is that God gave to us. As Paul said in the book of Romans, what may be known about God is plain to them, to humanity, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, 
so that people are without excuse. Or to use Augustine's concept concerning this truth, he said of God, you're the creator of the natural world, God. There is, in every sense, nowhere for anyone to draw back from you. Now, of course, not everyone comes to the conclusion that David came to or that Paul came to. It is possible to read nature and to read scripture uh, poorly. It is possible to look into the cosmos and see a random and extreme chance to see all that exists as the luckiest and most unexplainable of outcomes. Uh, But that, according to David, would be reading nature poorly. And in David's time, a wrong reading of nature did not lead to a belief in random chance, but a trust in false deities. David was surrounded by cultures and peoples who, instead of seeing the sun and worshiping a creator behind the sun, began to worship the sun itself. Soon, all around him, David saw people worshiping sun gods and harvest gods and rain gods and prosperity gods. Uh, But David was able to look at creation and see behind it, to worship the true God. So David was careful to show how creation should not lead to a worship of the creation, but an appreciation for creation and the worship of the God behind it. He did this when he talked at the end, verse four and six, about the majesty of the sun. You know, like I said, a lot of cultures worshiped the sun, but David celebrated it with this ancient image. He said, the sun is like a bridegroom who comes out of the wedding chamber or wedding tent uh, at, the, at the beginning of his marriage. It's, it's like, this, this is a newly married man. He's on, he's on day one of his marriage. You, you ask him, how's marriage? How's it going? And he says, it's great. I love marriage. It's, it's wonderful. It's going so good because it's a fresh beginning. It's a new start. And David is saying, that's what every day is like to me. The sun rises There's this fresh opportunity that God himself has given to us. He also pictured the son like a world-class athlete when he called it like a strong man running its course with joy each day. And David pointed out that nothing on earth, verse six, is hidden from the sun's heat. Again, David means that no one escapes God's revelation in nature. We all see it and we're all impacted by it. And what David saw led him to praise God for his glory and handiwork. Uh, David joined the saints of heaven who sing in Revelation chapter four when we get a glimpse of the throne room of God. We're singing there, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So we too need to join David and we need to read God's nature book well. We need to see beauty in what God has made and it needs to then in turn uh, prompt worship in our hearts uh, to the Lord. Uh, Recently I was, you know how it is when you're like, somehow you're, you're online and you just land in a place where you're like, I have no idea how I got here. This happened to me recently where I came across this article where a scientist was giving uh, an explanation as they'd studied it and tried to figure, out, figure it out about why dogs, when you talk to them, sometimes tilt their heads when they look at you. And I, I, I kind of caught my attention because we do this to our dog all the time. His like trigger word is, I mean, if, if you say the word bath, 
then that, he doesn't like that. He goes and slinks under a chair and hides from you. But if you say, do you wanna, like anything, do you wanna get hit by a car? Just the word wanna <laughs> makes him kind of tilt his head. He like looks at us like, what? I'm, he's like, it seems like he's trying to figure out what you're saying. So I thought, I can't wait to hear what this, like what is the scientific reason that my dog is uh, doing this? And so I read the article and what they concluded with all their scientific studies is that our dogs are trying to figure out what we're saying. <laughs> That's it. They're and they said, this is actually a human behavior as well. And when I read that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's true. I'm a preacher. I see this quite often, you know, as I'm in the middle of a sermon, just kind of that like look, like I'm trying to, oh, okay, I'll, let me explain a little bit more. So if you want me to end my sermons more quickly, you just, you need to like nod your head. That <laughs> makes me feel like you got it and I can move forward. When I read that though, I was just like, that's so cool. God didn't have to make dogs do that, but it's just so cool that he decided to do it. And every time that we see something that is not necessarily necessary, but is enjoyable to us in creation, we should rejoice and celebrate God. The flight of the hummingbird, the course of the planets, the power of the cell, all of it as we discover it should bring us closer to God and deeper into worship. Okay, the second thing, though, that David interacted with after nature was Scripture, the Bible. Uh, he calls it the law. And what he discovered about God from the law is that God is good. Uh, in the second section of the psalm, uh, David changed his focus, like I said, from nature to Scripture. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually thinks that what David was doing when he made this transition was he was thinking about, because he ended in verse six with the heat of the sun impacting everyone. And I think he thought the sun is like the center point of creation, God's natural revelation. What's the center point of God's special revelation that its heat is felt by everyone? And he thought it's the law. It's God's requirements for humanity. Uh, and David here seems to go into like a closer fellowship with God. Uh, when he talks about God as the creator, he uses a Hebrew word for God that is more generic and general in nature. But here, when he talks about God as the author of the Bible or the law of the Lord, he talks about and he uses the Israelite personal name for God, Yahweh. So it seems that he's coming closer to an understanding of who God is as he thinks about God in the word. And when David shifted his focus to scripture, he definitely shifted up his writing style. So, some scholars are even so tripped up by this that they think that these are two ancient poems that were shoved together to make one psalm because the first part of it about nature is like flowy and uh, it, it's like uh, got like a ballad kind of feel to it. And, and then quickly it just moves into these lines like the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the son is, is of the lord is sure making wise the simple it'd be like listening to adele and it's just like in the middle of the song shifts to like a a, a hip-hop song where the rapper is just like throwing the lines out so quickly it'd just be like a jarring thing that's what david is doing and i think it's imp imp uh, on purpose that he's doing this for us in this section uh, David mentions uh, six attributes of the law, 
six things the law does or effects of the law, and then he gives six titles for the law. For the attributes, look in verse seven through nine, David thought that the law was perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. Tell me, do you think that David had a high esteem for the law or not? It's clear from the attributes that he ascribes to it. He has got a high view of it. Uh, As for what the law does, verse seven to nine, he said the law can revive the heart, or excuse me, revive the soul, make wise the simple, rejoice the heart, enlighten the eyes, endure forever, and be altogether righteous. And as for titles, David called it the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. Uh, Clearly, David, when he called the law of the Lord all those things, saw it as something to be obeyed. God's law, God's commandments, God's rules. But it seems that he also thought that obedience would lead to an incredible kind of life, revived souls, bright eyes, joyful hearts. Uh, It's as if David thought that the law and all the restrictions that the law placed on him, thou shalt not and thou shalt, it's as if he read all those, thought about all those, and concluded, this is really good for me. This is the best kind of life I could ever live. Uh, He said it revived him uh, because it has a restorative quality to it. It made him solid because it has a wisdom imparting nature to it. It made him joyful because it helped him experience the God who made him. It made him bright-eyed, he said, because of the deep internal joy that comes through fellowship with God. In short, David felt that the law of the Lord and obedience to it did wonders for him. David would have agreed with Paul the Apostle in the New Testament when Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, he said for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. This is an important attitude to have about the Bible, to have about Scripture. But I think a lot of times we don't have it. Uh, I remember when I was uh, in uh, a little boy, when I was in fourth grade, I, I had probably one of my least favorite years in school was in fourth grade. It was a, it was a rough year. I just, it was, I just had a teacher that I just did not get along with. I just didn't like her. Her name was Mrs. Wolf. She, I don't know if she's still around or not, but uh, it was at Pacific Grove, uh, at Forest Grove Elementary School in Pacific Grove, so I'm sorry if one of her family members is here, but I'm sure she's a great lady, but at, at, a, at fourth grade, I just wasn't vibing. And, uh, but she had this one thing. I remember she had this one thing that she would do where if you got, I think it was, if you got three perfect spelling test scores in a row, and she'd kind of track it on a little chart or whatever. If you got three in a row, then during one of the school periods, she would take you and whoever else got those perfect scores, and she would personally take you off campus, and we would go get ice cream at, this, at the local thrifties. And uh, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I, I got that a few times. I, I uh, had th- that kind of streak, uh, three in a row. And uh, I always remember it was like this very bittersweet kind of experience because she smelled like smoke and her car smelled like smoke and I didn't like her and it was a little awkward. So he like, had to go with her and spend 45 solid minutes together, but you got ice cream, you know? <laughs> 
And I remember it was always like, you know, you kind of get to the end of that third spelling test and you know, you're like, kind of like, do I spell the word right? Or I want the ice cream, you know, and I kind of go for it. I think a lot of us have that kind of uh, feeling about, about the commands of scripture. If I were to do it, if I were to actually submit myself to the God who made me and the life that he says that I should live, there might be some good things, but it would be funky and weird, and I'd just be missing out. It'd be, it'd be this bittersweet thing, but that you have to notice that was not David's feeling at all about the law of the Lord. He's like, it's when I eat honeycomb, David is saying, like the, the sweetest thing that they could find in that culture. They didn't have Starburst or high chews that they could buy at Costco. The sweetest thing that they could get in that, when I eat honeycomb, it's like the law of the Lord, that life, it's sweeter than that. That's how David felt about it. He had the right attitude about a life that is allegiant to God. I believe this is so important. I think this is where the rubber of the psalm meets the road of our lives. We might love God's green earth. We might celebrate him for its gifts and goodness, but do we think highly of his word? I think for a lot of modern believers even, the answer is no, especially when it comes to the moral restrictions that it places upon those who wanna follow him. Who, many will say, is God to tell us how to live? Well, I wanna say two things about that. First, he is your creator, who loves you more than you could ever know. And he has designed you so he knows precisely how we function best as humans, individually and collectively as a group. But second, he is best positioned to tell us how to live because he's the only one impartial enough to weigh in on it. What do I mean by that? The Bible teaches that God is complete, that God is independent, that God is sufficient, that God is in need of nothing. Nothing can be added to God. Nothing can be taken from God. God is not depleted, in other words, by our disobedience, and he is not completed by our obedience. He's never going to say, you complete me. That's not God. He is complete. His eternal love, his eternal joy, his eternal satisfaction will remain forever and ever, whether we follow him or not. But from his heart of love, he tells us the truth about what is best for us. It doesn't matter to God if it makes him popular or less popular. And it's that independence, that unique independence that no one else has, that God has, that should make us perk up and listen to him. Because he's gonna be fine either way. So it's important for us to have the attitude that David had about the word. I once heard the story of a young man whose job on the family ranch was to ride miles of fence line from time to time uh, looking for damage in the fence line. And, and he said the reason that he was given that job is because uh, cattle are dumb about everything, but they're really smart about finding a hole in the fence. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's often our approach to the Bible. 
We open it up. What are we looking for? The loophole, the exception. What can I do to kind of not be obedient to it? But instead, we should approach it with a different attitude. Lord, thank you for the safety of your word. I want to live inside of it. It is a protectant for me. Okay, all of that, uh, reading nature and reading uh, the Bible, it helped David read himself well. That's our last little category in verse 12 to 14. Uh, David started that little closing section by asking a question. He said, who can discern his errors? That's, he's not saying, who can discern God's errors? Uh, he's saying, I've, I've read nature, I've read the Bible, and who, I'm, who can self-perceive? Like, how could I possibly even know all the things that are off in me, that are wrong in me? Uh, who out there has a self-perception required to, to discover all his secret faults? Uh, but though David knew that he couldn't see all of the errors, all the blind spots, he knew they were there. So he prayed in verse 12 and 13 that God would declare him innocent. He's asking for innocence, a declarative innocence from God. And that God would keep him back from presumptuous sins. Like, God, I don't want to blow it. I don't want to go there, so keep me back from them. And then I love that prayer in verse 13. He said, God, let them not have dominion over me. I want victory. How many of you would say that this morning about some besetting sin in your life? You're like, God, that's what I want. I want, I want victory. I don't want these things to have dominion over me any longer. And uh, his hope in verse 13 and 14 was that he could be blameless and innocent and acceptable in God's sight. And he prayed all this to God as his rock and his redeemer in verse uh, 14. I think this is what a proper reading of nature and a proper reading of scripture will do in someone's life. It, in a sense, it's like David went through a funnel that God had designed. He, he saw God's glory and majesty in nature. Then he saw God's goodness and perfection in the law. And then as he processed it, he realized that there was this tendency in his own heart to want to break the law. And so he's crying out to God for cleansing and or forgiveness. Uh, I was talking with my uh, daughters the other day. Two of them, when they were little, they played softball, and I was their softball coach. Uh, that was a trippy experience, uh, being the softball coach for the little girls. It was just it was a, such a good memory in my life. We, we did it for three or four years. But uh, at the first earliest level, we were all reminiscing the other day about how the rules of the league that they were in were that the coach, and that was me, would pitch to their own players. And, uh, but if, if you, as the player, if you swung three times three, on three different pitches and you didn't hit it, then they would bring out a tee for you. You didn't strike out, but they'd put it, bring a tee out for you, and we put the ball on the tee. And as they were talking about it, we, we dubbed it the tee of shame, you know? Because <laughs> it was just like, Everybody knows why this tea is coming out here right now, you know? And, and then to make matters worse, sometimes you couldn't even connect with the ball on top of the tea. You know, you'd, if you whiffed at that, it was like, oh, wow. That, now it is the tea of utter shame, you know, kind of thing. And uh, I think that's what's happening here with David. It's like he's looked at the law of the Lord. He celebrated it. That law, that, the, the, the life that is described there in Scripture, it's the best life. But he realized there's something in me. I've tried, I've attempted, I've failed. David was a lawbreaker. He wasn't a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. 
And that drove him to ask for something that I think was prophetic. He wanted forgiveness, he wanted cleansing, he wanted expiation. This is where the loudest and clearest of God's revelation comes into play. Yes, God has spoken in nature. Yes, God has spoken in scripture. But he has spoken most loudly in the cross of his son. Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And after he made a purification for sins, he made a way for us to be saved from our sins, Hebrews says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, if you want to learn the sharpest, clearest things about God, you'll go to the cross of Jesus. It's at the cross that Jesus died in place of sinful humanity. What does that tell us? That teaches us that our sin was so grievous that it separated us from our maker. But the cross tells us that God's love for us is so magnificent that he would do everything he could to pull us back into relationship with himself. But that the barrier was so massive that it would require the death of his only begotten son and then his subsequent resurrection. And at the cross, Jesus died in place of sinful humanity. He was buried and he rose from the dead and ascended to sit down next to the Father. And it's at the cross of Christ that we see the clearest revelation of who this glorious creator God who instituted the law for the people of Israel, who he actually is. You see, nature could show us the universe's creator God. And the law could show us Israel's Yahweh God. But only the cross can show us how that God can become our Father God. What was the first thing that Jesus said when he rose from the dead? He said to Mary Magdalene, go and tell the disciples that I will meet them in Galilee. For I am going to my Father and your Father. He was letting them know because of what I have done, this creator, holy Yahweh God can become your father because my righteousness can be deposited into your bodies. So let's thank the Lord for this great revelation that he has given to us. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.